at the heart of our passage for today, which, by the way, I've loved preparing. It's, hopefully you saw something of that as Mbali read for us. It's a beautiful text that reveals something of our beautiful God. Um, but the reason I've loved it is at the heart of our passage for today, there are two topics that are tied together that we wouldn't usually tie together. Perhaps a way that we're not expecting or a way that we find surprising. The two topics are the topic of giving and the topic of joy. It's a chapter about giving because we've reached that point in Chronicles where the people of God are giving to fund the construction of the temple. Which, if you remember from previous weeks, lies at the heart of the book in lots of ways. So they're giving because they need to build. But it's a chapter about joy because their response in being able to give to this project is is one of joy. And yet I reckon that is perhaps the opposite of what we might naturally expect. Because we live in a world that says joy comes from having. Having things, stuff. Having products, having items, the next item, the next thing that of course will make you happy. Which never does. We live in a world that says joy comes from receiving. But in 1 Chronicles 29, the joy comes from the privilege of being able to give to the work of God. And so I want to put it to us this morning, at the heart of these verses, we learn something fundamental about who God is. And therefore something fundamental about what it means to actually be human. If you're here as a guest or a visitor, or even if you're not, that might sound alien to you, but the God of the Bible, again and again and again and again and again and again, is portrayed as a God who gives. He is depicted as a giver, as a generous God. More generosity than we can comprehend. One who who lavishly pours himself out for his people. Ultimately, as his son dies on the cross, takes on flesh, and dies in the place of his people. Which means as people who are made in God's image, we also, in a sense, are meant to be givers. That's something of what it means to be human. Those who, like him, give of who we are, who give of what we have. And when we do that, it makes us more like him, and so it brings us joy. That elusive joy. And yet when we are all about the taking and about self and about receiving and about being served and about being at the centre of our own little lives then something's not quite right and we are not who we were made to be and we find that there is no joy. Um, One of the brilliant traditions um, we as a family have inherited from Zoe's side is the idea of an unbirthday. So it goes like this. When it's your birthday, it was Josh's birthday yesterday, even though it was his special day, he was ten, the birthday child chooses and gives presents to the other siblings. Not from their new presents, but they (laughs) go out and give presents, or they go out and buy presents the week before and then give them as part of the birthday morning. And of course it will help with jealousy, brothers and sisters, as they look in at their brother getting all his presents, it helps with that, of course, but actually it's a deliberate way that on your birthday 
you remember it's not simply about what you can get and receive and the frenzy of opening all the presents, but actually the joy that comes from giving, from passing on, from planning and picking and giving to your siblings. You see their faces as they they receive what you've got for them. And there's joy on those faces, often. And you see, when we are made in God's image, when we remember that, then joy does come from giving to others. Because ours is a God who gives, who is generous, who provides. And before we jump in, and I'm aware we have a number of guests and visitors this week, just a bit in terms of context for the the two books of Chronicles, and we've been there for the last six weeks or so, we're probably about halfway through. Keep going, team. Um, do you remember, it is, a, it is a retelling of the history of God's people, but in such a way that they are, are looking forwards with hope. So they look back and see the way God has been faithful to them, or indeed what their faithfulness as God's people looks like, and then they look forward thinking, well, how do we live in the light of that past? So they know that God is still for them. They know that his promises still stand. They know that the, the king, that David, still matters. They know that that the temple promises are there. They learn the lessons of history. They know that faithful worship is vital. Which means this temple sits at the heart of the two books. Indeed, it's kind of at the hinge of one and two chronicles, which originally was one book. It's because the temple represents the place where God's people meet to worship him, to hear from him, to bring their sacrifices, their praise. Which means this is a key time as well as being a key place as well because it's transitioned between King David who is something of the hero of Chronicles transition from him moving on to Solomon. And so at the end of the chapter um, if you flick over to 434 you will see is the goodbye to David and hello to Solomon. Which means this is a poignant chapter. It's David's final message for his people. His final message both in terms of action and example and life and what he does but also through words and prayer and speech and what he says both come together and they are both beautiful have a look firstly at 1 to 9 with me you see God's all giving king leads the way in generosity. King David is exemplary in his own generosity. Have a look at verse 2. With, with all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colours and all kinds of fine stone and marble and all of these in large quantities. And, and yet David is being generous But of course, that was Israel's money from the national treasury, from the spoils of battle over the years. And so it does show a priority for the temple from him to gather what's needed for his son Solomon to finish the project, to, to shape the national budget in such a way that it will get built after him. Is it cheating a bit? I mean, he's prioritizing the national budget towards the temple, but was it really personally costly for David? It's a fair question. If we're thinking, well, it was easy for him, he had the proverbial bank of Israel to draw from, then verse 3 really matters. It's very unusual, it's very striking. You see, besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything. 
I have provided for this holy temple 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. You see, it's going to be a beautiful temple, but actually in verse 3 where it says, I now give my personal treasures, the original word was, well, for kings back then, it was kind of a, a personal contingency fund in case of disaster, in case it all goes wrong. This is extraordinary to our comfortable Western ears, but this is his savings pot. The savings pot that you only really touch if you really have to. This is the backup for when it all goes pear-shaped. In case of emergency. And yet David is delving deep into that. And that is a challenge, isn't it? And I'm thinking, come on, that's a bit reckless. <laughs> Awkward laughter. Risky, David. It doesn't sound hugely wise or sensible. Are you stewarding well what, what God has given? What if it all goes wrong, David? What are you going to do then? And yet David loves the Lord even enough to spend that. Indeed, he trusts the Lord enough to spend that. And I think it is the kind of passage that is meant to challenge us. It, it ought to do that. Remember, he is recalling history for them and for us so that they learn lessons of what faithful obedience looks like. What it means to worship him well. And that makes us feel uncomfortable, I suspect. I know for some of us, myself included, we can find far too much security in a pot of savings. It can make us feel safe rather than entrusting him. But be honest, how would you cope? Maybe some of you don't have savings. I apologise if you're a millennial and you probably don't. Um, but if you have a pot of savings, brothers and sisters, imagine what it feels like if they've all gone. If they are wiped out overnight. Would you trust him? Because when it comes to money, we know our hearts are deceitful. Money has this hold on us and our hearts. And David's generosity is there to challenge us. It's more than just money though. In verse 5, do you see, end of verse 5, Now who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? See, I take it David has actually consecrated himself to the Lord. That is, he is, he is given of himself entirely to the Lord. All of him, including his wallet, belongs to the Lord. Every last bit, he holds nothing back. And then he says to the people, well, who, who's going to do the same? Who will join me in consecrating ourselves to the Lord, in totally following him, in, in totally trusting him, even to the point of personal treasures being given? And of course David is there as a challenge for us. But actually his example, and we'll think more about this in a bit, actually points us forward to another one from David's line who would give everything. He would totally consecrate himself to the will of the Lord. David is a signpost to his greater son, the Lord Jesus, who made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But that is total consecration. That is holding nothing back. That is pouring yourself out entirely for the work of the Lord. And David's example was imitated. Because the leadership then followed suit generously, verse 6 onwards, the leaders of families and officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and hundreds and the officials in charge of the king's work, they all gave willingly. They see David's example and they follow suit. And the result then, verse 9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had freely given and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. There's, there's something fundamentally joy-giving as we see the people of God providing generously, as we see God providing through his people generously. It brings joy. I'm going to press pause at this point and just give four brief applications for us to begin to chew on. Um, maybe spend a bit of time this week thinking through them, maybe in home groups, maybe together over coffee afterwards in the queue when you're not quite sure what to say. Um, but four things to begin to chat through. Um, first one to say is if you're here as a guest or a visitor, um, in one sense switch off here because you are, you've joined us at an unusual season for us as a church. And the last six and a half years have been taken up with buying a new building Um, And we are still running that race and we still need generous giving, although people have been incredibly generous. We we have it, but there's a way to go before we develop it and and redevelop it. And there's more information at the back there. But it's worth saying that the old schoolhouse is not our temple equivalent. Our new building is not a temple. Now, under the New Covenant, the temple is not a building of bricks and mortar, it's a a building of people. The temple is a people. It is you and me and us. We are the temple. And so the actual equivalent, the parallel, ought to be, I think, a generosity towards church life. So if you're a regular at Magdalen Road, yes, possibly give to the old schoolhouse if you can, Or get involved with the team who are fundraising if you can, possibly, but definitely if you can give to the life of the church body. To us as a temple, the temple where God now dwells by his Holy Spirit. That's the first thought. The second is this idea of consecration of David. He, He gives himself entirely to God and he calls the people to do the same. And I think that is still what he wants from us. He wants total consecration, giving ourselves over to him and his purposes. Again, the context here is one of giving and financial stuff. But of course, consecration is far much more than that. To consecrate yourself to the Lord, in a sense, means he owns you, each and every last bit of you. The bit we can see and the bit we can't see, the stuff we know about and the stuff we don't know about external and internal, your dreams and your ambitions, your bank balance, your time, your studies, your friendship, your Netflix binges, your internet usage, your future, your savings pot. You are his. You are not yours. And so the challenge for that complete consecration is still there. 
I think it must make us consider as well this idea of consecration that leads to the point of vulnerability. Thirdly, David gave to the extent that it wasn't safe. And I don't want to push this too hard. I'm not saying that savings are wrong or savings are a bad thing. I think elsewhere in the scriptures we see Paul, for example, saving to fund future ministry. But I'll be honest, this passage has made me consider whether my view of savings are particularly Christian or not. Are our view of savings particularly Christian? Or do we simply think about them like everyone else does? Do we do savings as the world does savings? For those of us who have savings. Apologies if you don't. What a great opportunity to trust the Lord if you don't have savings, eh? There can be an idol of safety, though, when it comes to savings. That we, can, we might be risk-averse, or, or we might lack generosity. This passage makes me ask, am I in charge of my savings, or is the Lord? I think those are very countercultural questions. And the fourth thing, just to say, to chew on at this point, is that we ought to reflect on Jesus, who is our catalyst for generosity. If you're a stingy Christian, maybe spend some time this week asking God to help you grasp his generosity to you. Yes, we can look to David, but David points us to Christ. And might Jesus be both the example for us, but the means by which we are transformed in our generosity as well, as he enables us to live differently, to be generous-hearted, because he's been generous with us, pouring himself out for us. Not in a sort of paying him back type sense, as if we could, but simply to follow him. So there's our first point, verse 1 to 9. The second one from 10 to 22 is you see something of God's self-giving character that means that we can give. And you see the transition from verse 9 to verse 10. David's rejoicing in verse 9 turns then to prayer to God in front of the people from verse 10 to 19. He pivots and starts praising the Lord in front of them all. And he continues to rejoice, but not in the generosity of the people, but in who God is. And he bubbles over with what God is like. There are extraordinary verses that sing of fundamental truths about the Lord. If they feel familiar for some of you, um, it probably means you have been in an Anglican church in years gone by. They are still used now in Anglican liturgy. As the collection is taken, the leader speaks words from this prayer to thank God. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the splendour and the majesty. They are beautiful words. And I want to just pick out a few things as we work through them. Um, It's a prayer, firstly, addressed to God. They are verses about him. It's you, 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 yours, Lord, your, your, you. And there's something good and appropriate and right for us to tell God how amazing he is. Not because he's kind of needy or needs a bit of an ego boost but rather it's the relationship we were made for and so to adore him is a good thing 
The danger is because of our inward bent of sin. We, we forget to do that and so we begin to pray and it easily becomes about us and we've got a prayer list and we've got needs and wants and, but before we get into those things it's right for us to just remember who he is to adore him first to adore the one for whom we were created so he praises God modelling to the people and to us how to do that reminding them of who God is and as he does that secondly he, as one writer puts it he ransacks the theological dictionary for terms expressing God's sovereign power I like that have a look at them in verse 11 to 12 beautiful words yours Lord is the greatness the power the glory the majesty the splendour for everything in heaven and on earth is yours yours Lord is the kingdom you are exalted as head over all wealth and honour come from you you are the ruler of all things in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all And remembering that is so important because our natural, sinful, daily, human bent in Adam, in the West particularly, in our self-sufficiency and our godlessness, is we've lost this perspective. And at the heart of all sin and rebellion is this idea of wanting to be like God. And so we think it's us who deliver and provide. We, we think it's all ours, or at least we do in practice. But it's his greatness and power that's far above us and far beyond us. And yet if we're honest, I think if we read verse 11 and 12, in practice at least, we might say, ours Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and splendour for everything in heaven and on earth is ours, day by day. And wealth and honour come from us and our hard work. And we are the rulers of all things and in our hands are strength and power. Which, which means we need a fundamental posture of humility and thankfulness and praise and remembering who he is and so who we are. If verse 12, then verse 13, and that's not a natural thing for our proud hearts. Because we forget The third theme that kind of weaves through these verses beautifully is this idea that everything we have comes from him, which means, as we said at the start, God is a giver. He is generous. And so we are to be givers because he has given to us. He gives not that we might store away in barns where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal, but rather that we might give and have the privilege of being givers, that we might steward well what he has delegated down to us. He says, okay, here's, here's some stuff for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and you. And he shares it around. He says, now, and what do you do with it? How, how are you going to use it? How are you going to use it for me and my glory, says the Lord? And so David says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. It, it wasn't really ours in the first place, friends. We've only given what came from his hands. Only in his generosity that was entrusted to us do we then give. We can't pat ourselves on the back about it. 
And he seems to stress it again, actually, in verse 16. It's as if, it's as if we have a hard time remembering this, or believing this, or trusting this. And so he says in 16, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple, for your holy name, comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. You wonder at this point if there's a sense in which this temple that they've collected for will bring an air of permanence and stability for the people of God. A sort of settledness. And so in 15 where they were foreigners and strangers like their ancestors, now they have the land and now they have a palace for David. Now they're going to have a, a temple. Maybe he needs to re-emphasise and remind them that God really is God. And that God really has enabled this because it's all too easy to get a bit proud about things. And when we do that, we forget him. And so they'll need to remember in years to come as well, 18 and 19. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I provided. But maybe David knows something of the deceitfulness of our hearts and so in 18 he, he wants the Lord to preserve our deceitful hearts that we might continue to be loyal to him, even though they're settled now. And so when he's gone, and he is just getting ready to pass the baton on to Solomon, when he's gone, he wants to make sure, as far as he can, that this model and these priorities will continue. That the hearts of his people will continue to remain faithful to their gods that they might be loyal to him. But also that Solomon will follow through and build this temple that's been planned. Deceitful hearts, and we know, can be tempted and sucked in by money and wealth and power and stability. And we have a way of being nudged off course. Maybe David knows that. As if he wants to pray that they will continue to be loyal to the Lord. The account ends then with a bit more rejoicing in 23 to 22. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the King. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand male lambs together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day what a glorious way to end David's reign rejoicing celebrating with humility in the presence of the Lord God is pleased to be among them and they are full of joy as they remember what God is like and what he's provided And our daily battle is for these hearts to forget who God is. And we think that we are what it's about. And all that we have is ours and it's earned and it's acquired by us and we'll do what we want with it, thank you. 
And so David's prayer at the end here is really helpful in just reorientating us with the truth that he is God and all that we have is his. He humbles us. And he is generous to us that we might be generous with others. And so do you see how when it comes to generosity and joy, how countercultural God's way is? How different and yet how right? That instead of being a burden, giving to the Lord is actually a privilege. And instead of bringing sadness of what we're, we're missing out on, giving actually results in joy. And so how can we be better givers? How can we give this week? What does this account mean for you? What has God been saying to you at this point? Maybe just a moment of quiet. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendour. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your holy name. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the ruler. You are far above us. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendour. And everything belongs to you. And we pray that you would keep humbling us, that we might remember that truth. That we might remember who you are and who we are. Father, we confess that we forget that. And the bent of our hearts is towards towards thinking it's about us. We thank you that you are an extraordinarily generous and kind God. We thank you that you have given us so much. And yet again we confess that we don't always steward that well. We pray that we might reflect more of who you are as a generous giver and indeed we might reflect more of your King. King David but ultimately King Jesus as the one who consecrated himself for us. 
pouring himself out. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.